when I finally got to college, uh, there was a radio station being born on campus. So I, along with a lot of other students at the time, walked in the door and asked, what do I need to do? Every day was, was an adventure. Every day was fun. Every day was a challenge. Um, every day the fire bell rang, so to speak. You know, there was an emergency of some kind, but it was always fun and it was always exciting. You know what, it was a type of station that you felt like I make a difference of what I'm doing. I call it a spawning ground for really talented people. I wasn't one of them, but you know, I, I'd like to think that I've trained quite a few. You know, I felt as though we were leaving a, a lasting legacy to the community. This is Wavelength, Baltimore's public radio journey from your public studios, a monthly podcast series made possible by PNC Bank. I'm your host, Maria Broom. Over six episodes, you'll learn the origin stories of WYPR, WTMD, WEAA, and WBJC, and hear how they became trusted sources for news, music, the arts, and more. Plus, we'll look at what's next for local public radio. As you'll discover over the course of this series, these stations have a lot in common. The era in which they were founded, voices that were heard on more than one frequency, and evolutions in programming and call letters. And all of their roots run back to local academic institutions. Dr. Jason Lavilio, Associate Professor of Media and Communication Studies at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, stresses the importance of college radio. College radio is such an important story, and is so it's not it's not as well told as it should be. It's such it was such an important um, proving ground for so many people who've gone on to become uh, journalists on air, personalities, talent in radio, television, and other media. Uh, college radio had the virtue of being accessible, place to experiment, but it also had the the great fortune of being able to invent formats that the current commercial and public landscape of, of radio wasn't doing justice to. There just simply wasn't enough new music, cutting-edge music being played on the air in most metropolitan areas. And so um, not only were students learning on the job how to, how to be real uh, media uh, professionals, but they were teaching the industry something. And I think we may uh, be in a similar moment with podcasting where a group of uh, dedicated amateurs have helped to create something that has now been discovered uh, by large corporate interest to be uh, remarkably popular and incredibly valuable. We'll hear more from Dr. Lavilio later in this episode and from station employees from the 70s who are going to tell the story of local college radio. But first, let's take it back to 1951. by Nat King Cole was at the top of the charts. I Love Lucy was on many Americans' television sets. The Korean War was in the news. And WBJC hit the airwaves. 
It broadcasts classical music and arts programming from the campus of Baltimore Junior College, now Baltimore City Community College. Before it landed at 91.5 on the FM dial, WBJC could be found on 88.1. Fast forward to the early 70s, and WBJC broadcasts a diverse mix of music and news. Here's audio of a sign-on by then-host John Patty. This is Public Radio, WBJC-FM in Baltimore, Maryland, operating on an assigned carrier frequency of 91.5 megahertz, FM channel 218, with an effective radiated power of 17,500 watts, as authorized by the Federal Communications Commission. Affiliated with ABC and the National Public Radio Network, our studios and transmitter are located on the campus of the Community College of Baltimore. Let's turn the story over to two former WBJC employees. First, host Jim Armstrong, and then Director of News and Public Affairs, Clint Coleman. I'm Jim Armstrong. I was formerly at WBJC, WCBM, KBIA in Columbia, Missouri, uh, WTMD uh, here in, in Towson. Some friends of mine were part of the radio station WBJC then, and um, they had been on and operating, and I was going to school at Baltimore Junior College. At that time, uh, the school had a radio and television uh, curriculum. So I started to get involved with them and hanging out there and uh, at their, uh, their radio station, which was a full studio, but only broadcast to campus. And as I, you know, began volunteering at BJC, this was back in, in 1972. Back in those days, there were only a couple of paid staff. Most of us were student volunteers. And so one day, um, somebody didn't show up. We were doing a, a program in the afternoon called Jazz and Stereo. And uh, Brian McDonald, who was the program director at the time, looked at me as, you know, I'm standing around, and he said, all right, you're going to do the show. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and that's how I got started. Everybody worked. <laughs> Everybody worked. Everybody had a show. This is WBJC Baltimore. The radio station of the Community College of Baltimore. I was not familiar with public radio when I got that job, but I got familiar very quickly and fell in love. <laughs> the learning curve was about doing more than just five minute newscasts, uh, which in commercial radio, that's about all you get. Um, but in, in public radio, you're looking, at, you, you're looking at a half hour newscast, you're looking at a news, uh, music and information program, for example, which is it's where I started, there. And I had three hours to fill. <laughs> and then they extended it to four hours. And I was doing interviews. I mean, for example, back then in the 70s, uh, you know, I, I got bombarded uh, by Iranian students who were um, enrolled at uh, the community college. And they, they, I mean, they hit me every other day about the, the kinds of of um, atrocities being committed by the Shah of Iran on uh, the people of Iran. Years later, 
you find out really vividly in color uh, what kinds of atrocities he in fact was committing. And so you said, boy, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad I gave him that platform um, to express their, their views. Many listeners will be familiar with the music station WTMD, but before there was WTMD, there was WCVT. And before that, there was WVTS, a carrier current AM station, which began operations in 1972 from the campus of then Towson State College. You'll hear the phrase carrier current several times in this episode. In a carrier current transmission, Electrical wiring carries a low-power radio frequency signal, which is then transmitted along electrical conductors. Radios within a short distance pick up on the signal. Okay, now back to the story. Steve Curran was music and program director at WVTS in 1974 when station staff and college administrators put together an FCC application to get an FM license. We went and met with our broadcast attorneys in their beautiful marble offices in downtown DC and walked through this application. And um, it, was, it was fascinating because, you know, it was a, certainly I was more on the creative side, but suddenly I'm wearing a, you know, I had to go buy a suit to go to this meeting. And uh, we uh, sat with these broadcast attorneys and they walked us through how we had to apply for this license. And they did it for next to nothing, um, which was amazing. And John McCarran was our faculty advisor at the time, and um, everybody has someone in their lives, uh, in their student lives, that that touched them or opened the door for them. Um, and I think John McCarran opened more doors for more people that went on to do some amazing things because of his uh, teaching method, which was really to make sure that you understood the law, you understood what a third class license was that you understood what you can and can't say on the radio and, and certain things about programming and timing and 30 seconds and 60 seconds and all the increments that come with understanding how broadcasting works. But then aside from that, John just, just had, he just had a good soul. You know, he had, he had that rare ability to really be able to step back and let us do what we did. And, you know, the truth is, is we had no idea what we were doing, but they knew enough because in 1975, the FCC license was approved. WVTS became WCVT, the communications voice of Towson, and Steve became the general manager. The station went on air in 1976. WJZ had just gotten the very first satellite remote truck, and they went live to us when we signed the station on. Jerry Turner introduced us, who was the main news anchor there at the time. And it was really exciting because the president of the university was there and he and I sort of held hands, if you will, and flipped the switch together at the same time on the air. And it, and it, was, it was really fun and fantastic. Here's what Steve sounded like on air in the 70s. music from Fluorescent Leach and Eddie, alias Flo and Eddie, who are two formal, former turtles and members of Frank Zappa's group, and a tune off their first solo album, Feel Older Now. Before that, Jim Price, and You Gotta Move, 
Man for Man and about four minutes worth of meat from uh, their first Earth Band album. We started everything off with David Bowie from uh, the album Changes and Space Oddity. 10 before 10, you're listening to WCVT-FM in Towson. My name's Steve Kern. I'm with you up until uh, 1 o'clock. And a few messages here for you that a magic show for children 6 to 11 years of age will be held at the Pikesville branch of the Baltimore County Public Library at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, July 21st. It'll be given a uh, it'll be given by rather a professional magician, and uh, perhaps even a buzz. Uh, the professional magician's name is Earl Canap and his company. But the station wasn't done with the FCC yet. Stu Lumsden, who hosted a jazz show as a student, explains a rooftop test that WCVT aced. We've been granted a license, but we were required to show proof, show proof that we wouldn't be interfering. I think it was Steve, myself, maybe even John Fisher, John McCarran, uh, waltzed up to the top of the residence, uh, the uh, the residence tower, I think it was called, on the roof, uh, with a you know a, a, a television of the day, like a 19-inch television set, and tuned it to the stations nearest to uh, the you know where the, the FM band lies, and I can't remember that I used to know this by heart, but. Um, and then looked to see we're standing right underneath the tower. So and if we're going to be interference, it was going to be there. And um, then noted, you know, some small interference and then cut a piece of wire to one quarter wavelength of the 89.7 megahertz wave and attached it to the antenna leads on the uh, television set and the interference went away. And then we all nodded. John had a big smile on his face and we left. Dr. Jason Levilio, Associate Professor of Media and Communication Studies at UMBC, says that securing FCC licensing was only one of the challenges that College Station leaders faced. They had to assume a certain amount of legal risk for being in charge of, of content that, going, that was going out over FCC-regulated airwaves. They had to also navigate uh, any number of complicated uh, relationships with um, publishing and, and broadcast rights music uh, publishing and copyright uh, interests. And so it really was uh, a a proving ground for so many uh, of the kinds of skills that would become important for media professionals. Remember how I said in the beginning that these stations have shared connections? Well, in the early 70s, Towson State College and then Morgan State College planned to share a radio station. But in 1977, Morgan State University got its own signal, W-E-A-A, which stands for We Educate African Americans. For Lamont, Germany, a W-E-A-A student volunteer at the time, the first on-air broadcast was one he'll never forget for a number of reasons. They came on the air coincidentally on my birthday, and it was January 10. 1977, when the station first came on the air, and there was an excitement that was brewing all throughout the radio station, really all throughout the campus. Uh, They were waiting for the call from the FCC for about two or three days, giving them clearance to finally turn on the switch and go on the air. And the very moment the station went on the air, I was in the newsroom preparing a newscast and then program director, now Congressman, Kwasi Mfume was the first voice 
to actually go on the air and speak. And, and I just remember the whole station just stopped. Everybody stopped what they were doing. Uh, Washington Kwaisi say the first words uh, on WEAA, creating what for us was a path for many of us to pursue uh, our media dreams. I grew up in a radio family. My dad was a DJ in my hometown, uh, Pittsburgh. And I wanted to just grow up being my father, doing what my dad did. So I would pretend to be on the radio with my tape recorder. And when I finally got to college, uh, there was a radio station being born on campus. So I, along with a lot of other students at the time, walked in the door and asked, what do I need to do? I started out as a uh, student volunteer in the news department, uh, eventually transitioned into the sports side of things. Sandy Mallory worked at WEAA during its first year on the air. She was tapped by radio legend and WEAA news director Larry Dean to work in the news department, but that's not where she stayed. I came in, set up a tape for him, did a readout, and then he said, I'm going to hire you. I'm going to bring you on board as a news director. So did I become the news director? No, <laughs> because Kwesi hired me to work on the air. He said, I'm sorry, but if you work on the air in news, you're going to have to come off the air in music. I said, hmm, do I really want to come off the air in music? I don't think so. <laughs> so I went. And I told Larry, I says, I'm sorry, Larry, I'm going to go on to the news department in the music department with Kwesi and Fumi and his group. And that's how I started the music. And I worked on weekends. My show was called Weekend Sunshine. You've likely noticed that the majority of the voices you've heard so far have been those of men. Sandy said she arrived at WEAA after being turned down by other stations who were reluctant to put women on the air. Because I went around, took my little taping my little uh, resume to all the stations that were available at that time, they said, there's nothing available for you here. And that's, that's, what, it, that's what it boiled down to. There's nothing available for you here. We don't have any room for women on the air. There was very few women on the air at that time, maybe one or two in different stations. Um, and I started at WEA along with Alfie Williams. She became the morning show host and I became the evening show host. Isis Arabay was a WEAA morning show host from 1980 to 1985. She started as a volunteer in 1979 and was one of the few women at the station. I didn't really realize or remember that there weren't any other for a couple of years female on-air uh, personalities at our station doing what I was doing. There were some women in the news department, and I was familiar with another woman who was at another station, not a public radio station in Baltimore, but I think because I was so enthralled with radio itself and the possibilities that I didn't notice the gender issues. WJHU DJ Edmund Newman who you'll hear more from later in this episode, says while there were women on WJHU's airwaves in the late 70s, the on-air staff was reflective of the Hopkins campus community. There were a limited number of women on the campus at the time, I guess is the best way to put it. But our community members were mostly male and from um, 
people who were interested in playing um, sort of really alternative music at the time. Of course, there were women working in Baltimore radio in the 70s. There was Dabai Sababu, who was a morning show host at WEAA in 1977. There was Elaine Stein, whose career spanned multiple decades with stops on the AM dial at WBAL and WCBM. And there was Jean Ross at V103 and many other women working on air and behind the scenes. Here's WJHU's Edmund Newman again and WJHU engineer and general manager Judd French, who you'll hear more from after the break. One of the interesting things that the university did insist upon uh, was that we have someone to uh, sort of watch over us. And so there was a, uh, a woman, Irene Chamish, who was hired uh, as a, she was sort of a secretary, uh, kind of became a den mother to us all. She had worked at various radio stations around Baltimore and so had radio experience and had somehow the right attitude of dealing with a bunch of crazy uh, students who would uh, come in and leave at a moment's notice. And so she helped us uh, figure out what we were doing. I mean, if a student missed their on-air spot, she would jump in and take over the on-air spot. I, she did it all. The station program uh, director was, was a woman at the time. I was just sort of very conscious of the fact that I had Irene in the office and, and Jody Patillo uh, at, at my right hand. More on WJHU's story and the evolution of local radio in a moment. Stay with us. Welcome back to Wavelength, Baltimore's public radio journey. I'm your host, Maria Broom. On this episode, we've been focusing on the evolution of student stations in the 70s. Johns Hopkins University-owned radio station WJHU, which is WYPR's predecessor, first went on the air in the 40s, and since then, there have been numerous iterations of the station. Paul Hartman, whose voice and name you may recognize from the WTMD show Detours, was a student in 1973 and remembers the first time he came across carrier current WJHU. I lived in the dorms. And uh, I was taking my laundry to the laundry room, which is in the basement of the uh, other dorm building. There were two dorms at the time. And there's a radio station down there. Oh, that's cool. All right. So, you know, obviously it was high priority because it's right next to the laundry. But uh, I thought it was interesting and uh, wanted to find out more about it. And I found that my student advisor, who was an upperclassman, uh, had a show on uh, WJHU at the time. And so he showed me how it all worked. And uh, I thought, well, that might be fun to do. I like music. So uh, it was all free form. You could do whatever you want. And I had a whole bunch of uh, LPs. That's what we used, vinyl there. And uh, thought, well, you know, it's, it's fun to share. It's like making a, a giant mixtape that people could listen to over the air. Now, of course, at that time, WJHU was a carrier current AM station. You could only hear it in the two dorm buildings. And occasionally across Charles Street in the apartment buildings there, if you cranked up the power a lot, but it had to be cranked back down when someone in the apartments complained that it was interfering with their favorite gospel station. Reception was spotty. So you always tell people, well, if you can't get WJHU, move your radio closer to a light bulb because the 
AC wiring, as I understand it, was the, uh, the antenna. So, you know, get it closer to the antenna. I, I, I know some people listen, but probably not a whole lot. And it depends when your show aired, if it was 5, 6 a.m. I mean, what college student is up at that time? Judd French arrived on Hopkins campus in 1976. He found a top-notch studio built by WJHU staffer Bill Gross. Judd says Bill was running the student station like a professional one, but Hopkins students wanted control. There were a group of students, uh, older upperclassmen, that said, you know, this is not a student radio station. This is a guy who's been here for a long time, and we think this should be a student-run radio station as a student activity. And we don't have a professional um, broadcasting program at Johns Hopkins, and students should be able to participate to a greater degree, and community should. So they kind of took over the station, put through a new constitution, and reconstituted the organization. And the Feldman that had been there for years and years uh, was sort of ousted and it became a new entity, but with students that were more political science and and humanities majors than they were radio station operators. Um, And so I found myself in an interesting position and an English major ran for the position of chief engineer on the platform that He's going to delegate everything to Judd French to do. And when Judd has been with the station long enough, because there was a requirement to be an officer, you had to have been there for, I don't know, six months. So when uh, when he's been here long enough, I will step down, we'll hold a special election and we'll elect Judd chief engineer. (laughs) And that's what happened. Judd says several generations of WJHU staff organized to make the transition to FM but it didn't gain real traction until 1976. Judd was the chair of the FM Conversion Committee and student GM at that time and tells the story of how WJHU staff got the green light from Hopkins administration. What spurred this was the FCC had a docket item that was going to potentially eliminate 10-watt student stations, or educational stations, I should say. and. So there, and, and also there was really only one frequency left in the whole Baltimore crowded region, and that was 88.1. Uh, so in January of 77, uh, we had an initial meeting with Dr. Muller, the president, and came in with a two-step proposal, which was we needed to create a 10-watt station right away to get the frequency, and then later we needed to transition to a higher power. As it turned out, there was another FCC document, a docket, um, you know, requiring higher power and eliminating the 10 watt stations, as I'd said. So the president said, all right, let's give this a shot. He asked for a uh, cost and space estimate proposal. And this was, we met with him, I think it was on a Friday and he wanted to meet with the management team on Monday. So my first all-nighters at Johns Hopkins were not academic. They were producing a multi-page cost and space proposal with layouts and equipment lists and costs, um, which got delivered on Monday. And we got back a negative response. So I requested another meeting with Dr. Muller. And we met on April 11th and explained to him the urgency and showed him a consultant letter from somebody that we'd engaged. 
And so I also came in with an alternative funding proposal, which was, was less aggressive and had a couple of options. And he accepted one for $15,000 worth of funding. So that started a whole physical conversion of the station and transition to, to FM broadcasting. There are all sorts of fun stories that trying to get the application done and get it to the FCC. We were at the, you know, as students are wont to be, we were at the very, very last minute for the deadline to get in the door for the FCC. We had a careening car drive through Washington, D.C. down to the FCC, put a guy out on the corner at a phone to call the FCC to tell them we were coming and then drove up to the door and I ran out and ran into the FCC and slid the application in at the 11th hour and 59th minute. <laughs> and now for a special classical presentation from WJHU Baltimore, a live recording of Schubert's Symphony No. 8 in B minor as conducted by Peter Mag earlier this spring in the newly completed Steelworkers Hall in Waukegan, Illinois. Good evening. This is Wolfgang de Pessimissimo speaking to you direct from scenic Waukegan, Illinois. Nestled among the rolling cornfields and hog troughs in the heartburn of the great American Midwest, the hall in which I sit is literally buzzing with the frenzied excitement of nearly 5,000 expectant music lovers, the great and the small, the rich and the poor, the refined and the boorish. Those were the voices of Edmund Newman and Ward Kemp performing a skit from the WJHU show Beer Nuts in 1980. Edmund was a Hopkins student and DJ in the fall of 1979. That was before the station received its FM license. He said he was bitten by the radio bug early. I grew up in Philadelphia, and so we would listen to, like, Penn, uh, University of Pennsylvania had WXPN and Temple University had RTI. Uh, so I would, I knew about radio and was interested in it. And in fact, um, my father, who was a political uh, science professor at Temple, used to do a five minute um, weekly contribution to, uh, on WHYY in Philadelphia before NPR even existed. And so, uh, my favorite thing to do was to go with him when he would record his political commentary and um, play around in the recording studios. And so that's how I got into the radio station at Hopkins, because I think I, after my first semester, where I was a little unsure how my academic career was going anyway, I sort of sought out new experiences. And that was the radio station. WJHU was an interesting um, station at Johns Hopkins because uh, we had a lot of students, but there wasn't a um, on-campus uh, theater program at the time or arts program uh, or acting or anything like that. So it was a radio station run by students who were interested, but once you went FM, you know, you had to be on the air 24 hours a day, seven days a week by law uh, to keep your license. And so uh, we also had a number of community members and we were still carrier current. I was still a classical DJ. And so uh, that was broadcast in the mornings and I was broadcasting from like nine to noon. So there's probably nobody listening to me <laughs> at all. But the on-campus reach changed in April of 1979 when the station first broadcast as WJHU-FM. 
Judd estimates that the station's 10-watt signal reached locations within a six-mile radius from the campus. He says it was a triumph. Our team was working 24-7 on this, and, and I forget what article it was, but I had forgotten this occurrence until I read the article, and it noted that uh, as we went on the air and signed on the air that morning in early April, um, Judd French fell asleep under a chair in the corner of the studio. <laughs> well, you know that music they play in the Olympics when somebody wins? I mean, you know, it's kind of, everybody was pretty darn elated. There were some recurring themes in all of the conversations we had with former staff of WEAA, WJHU, WBJC, and WCVT. A major one? How much freedom staff had in what they played on the air. We had this mandate to explore our culture in terms of the music, spirituality, politics, sociology. Uh, The two-way talk show was a way for us to engage issues that were happening in the city. Very, very exciting, very expanding. And because we were owned by an HBCU, we had much more leeway to be that cultural and that political. We as students, we almost were tripping over each other physically in the station to get opportunities to do things both on air and off air. And it was exciting every day just to show up at the radio station and and engage in whatever the venture was going to be on that particular day. We had a chance to play any music that we wanted to play, talk to the people about what we thought was important, and. We got a chance to do whatever it is that we thought we could do. At the peak, I remember there were actually 241 volunteer station members. It uh, ran around something of 100 at one point. And these were people that came in also from the community uh, and were devoted to different genres of music and information and would come in and do a show sometimes late at night. While I was there in the initial run, I was just an on-air announcer. I did uh, a number of different shows from jazz and stereo to we did the morning show that was basically easy listening music at the time. I'd fill in for Brian who had sound effects and he had uh, used to have a uh, milkman deliver milk every morning during the show with uh, um, bring his cow in with the cowbell and all of that. It was kind of fun. Because back then, you had a lot more freedom to do things, to create uh, uh, characters, and to um, make your show as uh, interesting as you could. They had a format that uh, uh, was truly alternative, uh, because every place uh, on the radio dial that you didn't find a particular kind of music, jazz, rock, classical music, opera, show tunes, uh, you could find all of that. It started with, you know, classical music in the morning. It was an hour of educational at like nine o'clock to 10 o'clock. And then from 10 o'clock until seven o'clock, it was pretty much free format. You could play whatever you wanted, whatever your specialty was. Uh, I gave myself the Friday night show because I was a general manager and I could do that. Um, but I would do, a, I did a Motown show from seven to midnight because I was from Detroit. Um, and that was a lot of fun. Stu Lumsden, he did a, a jazz show there. Um, 
three days, four days a week. Stu was fantastic. He was a, a big influence in my life as well. We got to go in the air. We got to make mistakes as long as they weren't, you know, too illegal or, 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 or too awful and uh, tried just about anything because we were very free form. I mean, aside from the listener who called me up to tell me I, I shouldn't play things that weren't jazz on a jazz program, <laughs> I could have played the good ship lollipop, uh, you know, followed by some Bach, followed by Miles Davis. And there would have been no one at the station to tell me that that was actually wrong. Maybe funny and, and uh, uh, maybe not. Another thing we heard over and over again was how passionate listeners were about what they heard on air and the strong connection between the stations and their audience. We did get calls where people would call and say, I'm listening to you, I hear what you're doing, I like what you're saying, and I love the stuff that you're bringing to the community. I was so enchanted by the audience because I felt that the audience made such a difference for what you felt and what you could give back to them as well. I got... You know, I got a couple of callers who would you know, ask about something, maybe even give me a compliment on a rare occasion. Uh, and um, one who called me up to just lambast me for playing um, the Tower of Power. I played one night I played What is Hip? And I've just got taken the task of being told, that's not jazz. You can't play that. That's not that, that it isn't jazz. And I thought, well. You know, I, I kind of think the solos in the in the back and it's jazz, but yes, yes, I admit it. It's funk and it's it's all sorts of things. There was one time, uh, relatively early on, in the station's existence, uh, late seventies, early eighties, where the station ran into serious financial uh, problems. They had to launch an emergency fund drive in order to stay on the air. And the situation was so acute that they couldn't ask for pledges. They actually had to go on the air and ask for immediate funds in the right now. And they set up a couple of pilot uh, table and booths, one at the uh, Mondalmin Mall uh, on the west side of town, one at the old, old town mall on the east side of town and also on campus where they were asking people to physically bring money uh, to the radio station to keep the station uh, on air. And the community responded. We have people uh, walking in literally with jars of savings. Uh, and this went on for about five days. And the community responded. It was enough to stabilize the station until the, uh, uh, the managers could have a more uh, long-term structured financial plan. And, and that's what distinguishes, I think, public radio from commercial radio. There's an intimacy between you uh, and your audience. A, a public station knows I am only there because of, uh, not necessarily advertisers. I'm, I'm there because of uh, the community to whom I am programming. And that community was there for the radio station in a big way. I remember we used to get, you know, people would call all the time and comment on something I said or, or a song that I played. You know, you could get, you know, a phone call from somebody who said, you know, that's the best song I've ever heard. I really appreciate you playing it, yada, yada, yada. And then 10 minutes later, they'd call back 
and say, you know, I actually hate that song. You should never have played it. I'm never going to listen to you again. <laughs> it's, it was never about me. If you're doing it right, it's always about your audience and trying to reach out and touch them. And even I've had this experience as well where, you know, somebody who's in emotional trouble, you know, will call because, you know, they're thinking about suicide or, or just something else, you know, devastating. And they call you because if you're doing your show right, they feel like they know you, that you're a friend and they can talk to you. When they can't talk to anybody else, they can talk to you. And that was hard, <laughs> but you know, you stayed on the phone with them, you know, when, Hey, listen, hang on for a second. I got to change this record. And you kept talking with them until they felt better. It can be emotionally draining to have that sort of connection with your audience, but that's why we were there. You've been listening to Wavelength, Baltimore's public radio journey from your public studios. I'm Maria Broom. Production and support for this podcast and WIPR's 20th anniversary was brought to you in part by the PNC Bank. Jamila Kremple is the executive producer of Wavelength. Anne Kramer is our producer. Katie Marquette is our audio editor. Production and engineering support by Spencer Bryant. Research and production assistance by Maddie Bristow. WIPR's president and general manager is LaFontaine E. Oliver. Andy Beanstock is the vice president and program director. Michelle Williams is the director of underwriting. You can learn more about the podcast and see historical images and documents from the stations in this episode at wypr.org wavelength. New episodes of Wavelength will be released on the last Wednesday of the month. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. 